I speak to the youth more personally than I usually do, comparing my youth with yours. You are precious beyond measure. I have seen you in a dozen countries and on every continent. You are much better than we were when young. You know more about the gospel. You are more mature and more faithful. I am now 87 years old. You might wonder at my age what I can contribute to your lives. I have been where you are and know where you are going, but you have not yet been where I am. I quote a few lines of classic poetry. The old crow is getting slow, the young crow is not. Of what the young crow does not know, the old crow knows a lot. At knowing things, the old crow is still the young man's master. What does the slow old crow not know? How to go faster. <laughs> the young crow flies above, below, and rings around the slow old crow. What does the fast young crow not know? Where to go. <laughs> not Wordsworth, but classic poetry nonetheless. With all that is going on in the world, with the lowering of the moral standard, you young people are being raised in enemy territory. We know from the scriptures that there was a war in heaven and that Lucifer rebelled and, with his followers, was cast out into the earth. He is determined to disrupt our Heavenly Father's plan and seeks to control the minds and actions of all. This influence is spiritual, and he's abroad in the land. But despite the opposition, trials, and temptations, you need not fail nor fear. When I was 17, about ready to graduate from high school, as a very average student with some handicaps, as I thought, everything around us came apart one Sunday morning. The next day, we were called to the high school auditorium. On this stage was a chair with a small radio. The principal switched on the radio. We then heard the voice of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt as he announced that Pearl Harbor had been bombed. The United States was at war with Japan. Later, that scene was repeated. Again, the voice of President Roosevelt, this tonight announcing that our country was at war with Germany. World War II had exploded across the world. All at once, our future was uncertain. We did not know what was ahead. Would we live to get married and have a family? Today, there are wars and rumors of wars, and the whole earth is in commotion. You, our youth, may feel uncertainty and insecurity in your lives. I want to counsel you and teach you and give you a warning about some things to do and some things not to do. The gospel plan is the great plan of happiness. The family is the center of that plan. The family depends on the worthy use of those life-giving powers that are in your body. In the family, a proclamation to the world, an inspired document issued by the First Presidency in the Corps of the Twelve Apostles, we learn that in the premortal existence, all human beings, male and female, were created in the image of God. Each is a beloved 
spirit son or daughter, a heavenly parent. And as such, each has a divine nature and destiny. Gender is an essential characteristic and was established in that premortal existence. We further declare that God has commanded that the sacred powers of procreation are to be employed only between a man and a woman, lawfully wedded as husband and wife. The great penalty Lucifer and his followers brought upon themselves was that they were denied a mortal body. Many of the temptations you face, certainly the most serious ones, relate to your body. You not only have power to create bodies for a new generation, but you also have agency. The prophet Joseph Smith taught, all beings who have bodies have power over those who have not. So every living soul who has a physical body ultimately has power over the adversary. You suffer temptations because of your physical nature but you also have power over him and his angels. By the time we graduated from high school, many of our classmates had marched away to war, some of them never to return. The rest of us were soon to enter the military. We did not know about our future. Would we survive the war? Would there be enough of the world left when we returned? Against the certainty that I would be drafted, I joined the Air Force. Soon I was in Santa Ana, California for pre-flight training. I did not then have a firm testimony of the gospel that it was true, but I knew that my seminary teachers, Abel S. Rich and John B. Lillywhite, knew it was true. I had heard them testify and believed them. <clears throat> I thought to myself, I will lean on their testimony until I gain one of my own. And so it was. I'd heard about patriarchal blessings, but I had not received one. In each state, there is an ordained patriarch who has the spirit of prophecy and the spirit of revelation. He is authorized to give personal and private blessings to those who become recommended by their bishops. I wrote to my bishop for a recommend. J. Roland Sandstrom was the ordained patriarch living in Santa the Santa Ana State. He knew nothing about me and had never seen me before, but he gave me my blessing. In it, I found answers and instruction. While patriarchal blessings are very private, I will share a short quote from mine. You should be guided through the whisperings of the Holy Spirit, and you should be warned of danger. If you heed those warnings, our Heavenly Father will bless you so that you might be again reunited with your loved ones. That word, if, though small in print, loomed as big as the page, I would be blessed to return from the war if I kept the commandments and if I heeded the promptings of the Holy Ghost. Although that gift had been conferred upon me at baptism, I did not yet know what the Holy Ghost was or how the promptings were. What I needed to know about the promptings I found in the Book of Mormon. I read that angels speak by the power of the Holy Ghost. 
wherefore they speak the words of Christ. Wherefore I said unto you, feast upon the words of Christ. For the words of Christ will tell you all things that you should do. Perhaps the single greatest thing I learned from reading the Book of Mormon is that the voice of the Spirit comes as a feeling rather than a sound. You will learn, as I have learned, to listen for that voice that is felt rather than heard. Nephi scolded his older brother, saying, Ye have seen an angel, and he spake unto you. Yea, he has, you have heard his voice from time to time. He has spoken to you in a still, small voice. But you are past feeling that you could not feel his words. Some critics have said that these verses are in error because you hear words. You do not feel them. But if you know anything at all about spiritual communication, you know that the best word to describe what takes place is the word feeling. The gift of the Holy Ghost, if you consent, will guide and protect you and even correct your actions. It is the spiritual, spiritual voice that comes into your mind as a thought or a feeling, but into your heart. The prophet Enos said, the voice of the Lord came into my mind. And the Lord told Oliver Cowdery, behold, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart by the Holy Ghost, which will come upon you. It is not expected that you go through life without making mistakes, but you'll not make a major mistake without first being warned by the promptings of the Spirit. The promise applies to all members of the Church. Some will make critically serious mistakes, transgressing the laws of the Gospel. Here it is time to remind you of the Atonement. Acceptance, repentance, and complete forgiveness to the point that you can become pure again. The Lord said, He who has repented of his sins, the same shall be forgiven. And I, the Lord, remember them no more. If the adversary should take you prisoner due to misconduct, I remind you that you hold a key that will unlock that prison door from the inside. You can be washed clean through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Savior. You may, in time of trouble, think that you're not worth saving. You made some mistakes, big or little, and you may think that you're now lost. That is never true. Only repentance can heal what hurts, but repentance can heal what hurts, no matter what it is. If you are slipping into things that you should not slip into, or if you are associating with people who are pulling you away to the wrong direction, that is the time to assert your independence your agency. Listen to the voice of the Spirit, and you will not be led astray. I say again that you today are being raised in enemy territory with a declining standard morality. But as a servant of the Lord, I promise you 
that you be protected and shielded from the attacks of the adversary if you will heed the promptings that comes from the Holy God. Dress modestly, talk reverently, listen to uplifting music, avoid all immorality and personally degrading practices. Take hold of your life and order yourself to be valued. Because we depend so much on you, you will be remarkably blessed. You are never far from the side of your Heavenly Father. The strength of my testimony has changed since I felt a need to lean on the testimony of my seminary teachers. Today I lean on others when I walk due to old age and childhood polio, but not from doubt regarding spiritual matters. I have come to believe, to understand and to know the precious truth of the gospel and of the Savior, Jesus Christ. As one of his special witnesses, I testify that the outcome of this battle that began in premortal life is not in question. Lucifer will lose. We spoke earlier of crows. You young crows need not fly aimlessly to and fro, unsure of the path ahead. They're those who know the way. Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. The Lord organized his church on the principle of keys and counsel. At the head of the church is 15 men, sustained as prophets, seers, and revelators. Each of the presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles hold all of the keys of the priesthood necessary for directing the church. The senior apostle is the prophet president, Thomas S. Monson, who is the only one authorized to exercise all of those keys. The scriptures require that the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve work in council and that the decisions of those councils be unanimous. And so it is. We trust the Lord to guide the way and seek only to do His will. We know that He has placed a great deal of trust in us, individually and collectively. You must learn to trust in the Lord with all thine heart and be not in thine own understanding. You must be trustworthy and surround yourself with friends that desire to be likewise. Sometimes you might be tempted to think as I did from time to time by you, the way things are going, the world is going to be over with. The end of the world is going to come before I get to where I should be. Not so. You can look forward to doing it right, getting married, having a family, seeing your children, grandchildren, maybe even great-grandchildren. If you will follow these principles, you will be watched over and protected, and you yourself will know by the promptings of the Holy Ghost which way to go, for by the power of the Holy Ghost ye may know the truth of all things. I promise you that it will be so, and invoke a blessing upon you, our precious youth, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 At the end of a particular tiring day, toward the end of my first week as a general authority, 
My briefcase was overloaded, and my mind was preoccupied with the question, how can I possibly do this? I left the office of the 70 and entered the elevator of the Church Administration Building. As the elevator descended, my head was down, and I stared blankly at the floor. The door opened and someone entered, but I didn't look up. As the door closed, I heard someone ask, What are you looking at down there? (laughs) I recognized that voice. It was President Monson. (laughs) I quickly looked up and responded, Oh, nothing. (laughs) I'm sure that clever response inspired confidence in my abilities. But he had seen my subdued countenance and my heavy briefcase. He smiled and lovingly suggested while pointing heavenward, It's better to look up. (laughs) As we traveled down one more level, he cheerfully explained that he was on his way to the temple. When he bid me farewell, his parting glance spoke again to my heart, Now remember, it's better to look up. As we parted, the words of a scripture came to mind. Believe in God. Believe that He is. Believe that He has all wisdom and all power, both in heaven and in earth. As I thought of Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ's power, my heart found the comfort I had sought in vain from the floor of that descending elevator. Since then, I have pondered this experience and the role of prophets. I was burdened and my head was down. As the prophet spoke, I looked to him. He redirected my focus to look up to God, where I could be healed and strengthened through Christ's Atonement. That is what prophets do for us. They lead us to God. I testify that President Monson is not only a prophet, seer, and revelator, he is also a wonderful example of living the principle of looking up. Of all people, he could feel weighed down by his responsibilities. Instead, he exercises great faith and is filled with optimism, wisdom, and love for others. His attitude is one of can-do and will-do. He trusts the Lord and relies on Him for strength, and the Lord blesses him. Experience has taught me that if we exercise our faith and look to God for help, like President Monson, We will not be overwhelmed with the burdens of life. We will not feel incapable of doing what we are called to do or need to do. We will be strengthened, and our lives will be filled with peace and joy. We will come to realize that most of what we worry about is not of eternal significance, and if it is, the Lord will help us. But we must have the faith to look up and the courage to follow His direction. Why is it a challenge to consistently look up in our lives? Perhaps we lack the faith that such a simple act can solve our problems. For example, when the children of Israel were bitten by poisonous serpents, Moses was commanded to raise up a brass serpent on a pole. The brass serpent represented Christ. Those who looked up at the serpent, as admonished by the prophet, were healed. But many others failed to look up and they perished. Alma agreed that the reason the Israelites did not look to the serpent was they did not believe doing so would heal them. 
Alma's words are relevant to us today. O my brethren, if ye could be healed by merely casting about your eyes that ye might be healed, would ye not behold quickly? Or would ye rather harden your hearts in unbelief and be slothful? If so, woe shall come upon you. But if not so, then cast about your eyes and begin to believe in the Son of God, that He will come to redeem His people, and that He shall suffer and die to atone for our sins, and that He shall rise again from the dead. President Monson's encouragement to look up is a metaphor for remembering Christ. As we remember Him and trust in His power, we receive strength through His Atonement. It is the means whereby we can be relieved of our anxieties, our burdens, and our suffering. It is the means whereby we can be forgiven and healed from the pain of our sins. It is the means whereby we can receive the faith and strength to endure all things. Recently, Sister Cook and I attended a women's conference in South Africa. After listening to some inspiring messages on applying the Atonement in our lives, the Stake Relief Society president invited everyone outside. We were each given a helium balloon. She explained that our balloon represented whatever burden, trial, or hardship that was holding us back in our lives. On the count of three, we released our balloons or our burdens. As we looked up and watched our burdens float away, there was an audible, ah. That simple act of releasing our balloons provided a marvelous reminder of the indescribable joy that comes from looking up and thinking of Christ. Unlike releasing a helium balloon, spiritually looking up is not a one-time experience. We learn from the sacrament prayer that we are to always remember Him and to keep His commandments, that we may have His Spirit to be with us every day to guide us. When the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness, the Lord guided their journey each day as they looked to Him for direction. In Exodus, we read, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. His leading was constant, and I give you my humble witness that the Lord can do the same for us. So how will He lead us today? Through prophets, apostles, and priesthood leaders, and through feelings that come after we pour out our hearts and souls to Heavenly Father in prayer. He leads us as we forsake the things of the world, repent, and change. He leads us as we keep His commandments and try to be more like Him. And He leads us through the Holy Ghost. In order to be guided in life's journey and have the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost, we must have a hearing ear and a seeing eye both directed upward. We must act on the direction we receive. We must look up and step up. And as we do, I know we will cheer up, for God wants us to be happy. We are Heavenly Father's children. He wants to be a part of our lives to bless us and to help us. He will heal our wounds, dry our tears, and help us along our path to return to His presence. As we look to Him, He will lead us. The Lord is my light, then why should I fear? By day and by night His presence is near. He is my joy and my song. By day and by night He leads me along.
I bear testimony that sins are forgiven and burdens are lightened as we look to Christ. Let us remember Him and not hang down our heads, for as President Monson said, it is better to look up. I testify that Jesus is our Savior and Redeemer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. The eighth chapter of Preach My Gospel focuses our attention on the wise use of time. In the opening paragraphs, Elder M. Russell Ballard reminds us that we must set goals and learn how to master the techniques to achieve them. Mastering the techniques needed to reach our goals includes becoming the master manager of our time. I am grateful for President Monson's model. With all that he does as a prophet of God, he ensures, as the Savior did, that there is still sufficient time to visit the sick, to lift the poor in spirit, and to be a servant of all. I am also grateful for the example of many others who give their time in the service of their fellow men. I testify that giving our time in the service of others is pleasing to God and that such will draw us nearer to Him. Our Saviour will be true to His word that He who is faithful and wise in time is accounted worthy to inherit the mansions prepared for Him of my Father. Time is never for sale. Try as you may, Time is a commodity that cannot be bought at any store for any price. Yet wisely used, its value is immeasurable. On any given day, we are all allocated, without cost, the same number of minutes and hours to use, and we soon learn, as the familiar hymn so carefully teaches, Time flies on wings of lightning. We cannot call it back. What time we have, we must use wisely. President Brigham Young said, quote, We are all indebted to God for the ability to use time to advantage, and he will require of us a strict account of its disposition. Close quote. With the demands made of us, we must learn to prioritize our choices to match our goals or risk being exposed to the winds of procrastination and being blown from one time-wasting activity to another. We are well taught about priorities by the Master Teacher when he declared in his Sermon on the Mount, Wherefore, seek not the things of this world, but seek ye first to build up the kingdom of God and to establish his righteousness. Alma spoke of priorities when he taught that this life became a probationary state, a time to prepare to meet God. How to best use the rich heritage of time to prepare to meet God may require some guidance, 
but surely we would place the Lord and our families at the top of the list. President Uchtdorf reminded us that, quote, in family relationships, love is really spelled T-I-M-E, close quote. I testify that when help is prayerfully and sincerely sought, our Heavenly Father will help us to give emphasis to that which deserves our time above something else. The poor use of time is a close cousin to idleness. As we follow the command to cease to be idle, we must be sure that being busy also equates to being productive. For example, it is wonderful to have the means of instant communication quite literally at our fingertips. But let us be sure that we do not become compulsive fingertip communicators. I sense that some are trapped in a new time-consuming addiction, one that enslaves us to be constantly checking and sending social messages and thus giving the false impression of being busy and productive. There is much that is good with our easy access to communication and information. I have found it helpful to access research articles, conference talks, ancestral records, and to receive emails, Facebook reminders, tweets and texts. As good as these things are, we cannot allow them to push to one side those things of greatest importance. How sad it would be if the phone and computer, with all of their sophistication, drowned out the simplicity of sincere prayer to a loving Father in heaven. Let us be as quick to kneel as we are to text. Electronic games and cyber acquaintances are no lasting substitute for real friends who can give an encouraging hug, who can pray for us and seek after our best interest. How grateful I have been to see quorum, class, and Relief Society members rally to the support of one another. On such occasions, I have better understood what the Apostle Paul taught when he said, Ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. I know our greatest happiness comes as we tune into the Lord and to those things which bring a lasting reward mind, rather than mindlessly tuning into countless hours of status updates, internet farming, and catapulting angry birds at concrete walls. <laughs> I urge each of us to take those things which rob us of precious time and determine to be their master rather than allowing them, through their addictive nature, to be the master of us. To have the peace the Saviour speaks of,
we must devote our time to the things that matter most and the things of God matter most. As we engage with God in sincere prayer, read and study each day from the scriptures, ponder on what we have read and felt, and then apply and live the lessons learned, we draw nearer to him. God's promise is that as we seek diligently from the best books, he shall give unto us knowledge by his Holy Spirit. Satan will tempt us to misuse our time through disguised distractions. Although temptations will come, Elder Quinton Alcock taught that, quote, saints who respond to the Savior's message will not be led astray by distracting and destructive pursuits, close quote. Hiram Page, one of the eight witnesses of the Book of Mormon, taught us a valuable lesson about distractions. He had a certain stone and through it recorded what he thought were revelations for the church. On being corrected, an account says the stone was taken and ground into dust so it would never again be a distraction. I invite us to to identify the time-wasting distractions in our lives that may need to be figuratively ground into dust. We will need to be wise in our judgment to ensure that the scales of time are correctly balanced to include the Lord, family, work, and wholesome recreational activities. As many have already discovered, there is an increase of happiness in life as we use our time to seek after those things which are virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy. Time marches swiftly forward to the tick of the clock. Today would be a good day, while the clock of mortality ticks, to review what we are doing to prepare to meet God. I testify that there are great rewards for those who take time in mortality to prepare for immortality and eternal life. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. As we look into the eyes of a child, we see a fellow son or daughter of God who stood with us in the premortal life. It is a crowning privilege of a husband and wife who are able to bear children to provide mortal bodies for these spirit children of God. We believe in families and we believe in children. When a child is born to a husband and wife, they are fulfilling part of our Heavenly Father's plan to bring children to earth. The Lord said, This is my work and my glory, to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Before immortality, there must be mortality. The family is ordained of God. 
Families are central to our Heavenly Father's plan here on earth and through the eternities. After joining Adam and Eve in marriage, the scripture reads, And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. In our day, prophets and apostles have declared, The first commandment that God gave Adam and Eve pertained to their potential for parenthood as husband and wife. We declare that God's commandment for His children to multiply and replenish the earth remains in force. This commandment has not been forgotten or set aside in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We express deep gratitude for the enormous faith shown by husbands and wives, especially our wives, in their willingness to have children. When to have a child and how many children to have are private decisions to be made between a husband and wife and the Lord. These are sacred decisions, decisions that should be made with sincere prayer and acted on with great faith. Years ago, Elder James O. Mason of the Seventy shared this story with me. The birth of our sixth child was an unforgettable experience. As I gazed on this beautiful new daughter in the nursery just moments after her birth, I distinctly heard a voice declare, There will yet be another, and it will be a boy. Unwisely, I rushed back to the bedside of my absolutely exhausted wife (laughs) and told her the good news. It was very bad timing on my part. (laughs) Year after year, the Masons anticipated the arrival of their seventh child. Three, four, five, six, seven years passed. Finally, after eight years, the seventh child was born, a little boy. Here they are, 37 years later. Last April, President Thomas S. Monson declared, Where once the standards of the Church and the standards of society were mostly compatible, now there is a wide chasm between us, and it's growing ever wider. The Savior of mankind described himself as being in the world, but not of the world. We also can be in the world, but not of the world, as we reject false concepts and false teachings and remain true to that which God has commanded. Many voices in the world today marginalize the importance of having children or suggest delaying or limiting children in a family. My daughters recently referred me to a blog written by a Christian mother not of our faith with five children. She commented, Growing up in this culture, it is very hard to get a biblical perspective on motherhood. Children rank way below college, below world travel for sure, below the ability to go out at night at your leisure, below honing your body at the gym, below any job you may have, or hope to get. She then adds, 
Motherhood is not a hobby. Is, is not a hobby. It is a calling. You do not collect children because you find them cuter than stamps. <laughs> it's not something you do if you can squeeze the time in. It is what God gave you time for. Having young children is not easy. Many days are just difficult. A young mother got on a bus with seven children. The bus driver asked, Are these all yours, lady, or is it a picnic? <laughs> They're all mine, she replied, and it's no picnic. <laughs> As the world increasingly asks, Are these all yours? We thank you for creating within the Church a sanctuary for families where we honor and help mothers with children. To a righteous father, there are no words sufficient to express the gratitude and love he feels for his wife's incalculable gift of bearing and caring for their children. Elder Mason had another experience just weeks after his marriage that helped him prioritize his family responsibilities. He said, Marie and I had rationalized that to get me through medical school, it would be necessary for her to remain in the workplace. Although this was not what we wanted to do, children would have to come later. While looking at a church magazine at my parents' home, I saw an article by Elder Spencer W. Kimball, then of the Quorum of the Twelve, highlighting responsibilities associated with marriage. According to Elder Kimball, one sacred responsibility was to multiply and replenish the earth. My parents' home was close to the Church Administration Building. I immediately walked to the offices, and 30 minutes after reading his article, I found myself sitting across the desk from Elder Spencer W. Kimball. This wouldn't be so easy today. <laughs> I explained that I wanted to become a doctor. There was no alternative but to postpone having our family. Elder Kimball listened patiently and then responded in a soft voice. Brother Mason, would the Lord want you to break one of His important commandments in order for you to become a doctor? With the help of the Lord, you can have your family and still become a doctor. Where is your faith? Elder Mason continued, Our first child was born less than a year later. <laughs> Marie and I worked hard, and the Lord opened the windows of heaven. The Masons were blessed with two more children before he graduated from medical school four years later. Across the world, this is a time of economic instability and financial uncertainty. In April General Conference, President Thomas S. Monson said, If you are concerned about providing financially, for a wife and family, may I assure you that there is no shame in a couple having to scrimp and save. 
It is generally during these challenging times that you will grow closer together as you learn to sacrifice and to make difficult decisions. Elder Kimball's piercing question, where is your faith, turns us to the Holy Scriptures. It was not in the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve bore their first child. Leaving the garden, Adam and Eve began to till the earth. Adam knew his wife, and she bore sons and daughters. And acting in faith, they began to multiply and replenish the earth. It was not in their Jerusalem home with gold, silver, and precious things that Lehi and Sariah, acting in faith, bore their sons Jacob and Joseph. It was in the wilderness. Lehi spoke of his son Jacob as my firstborn in the days of my tribulation in the wilderness. Lehi said of Joseph, Thou wast born in the wilderness of our afflictions. Yea, in the days of our greatest sorrow did thy mother bear thee. In the book of Exodus, a man and a woman married and acting in faith had a baby boy. There was no welcoming sign on the front door to announce his birth. They hid him because Pharaoh had instructed that every newborn male Israelite should be cast into the river. You know the rest of the story. The baby lovingly laid in a little ark made of bulrushes, placed in the river, watched over by his sister, found by Pharaoh's daughter, and cared for by his own mother as his nurse. The boy was returned to Pharaoh's daughter, who took him as her son and called him Moses. The most beloved story of a baby's birth there was no decorated nursery or designer crib, only a manger for the Savior of the world. In the best of times and the worst of times, the true saints of God acting in faith have never forgotten, dismissed, or neglected God's commandment to multiply and replenish the earth. We go forward in faith Realizing the decision of how many children to have and when to have them is between a husband and wife and the Lord. We should not judge one another on this matter. The bearing of children is a sensitive subject that can be very painful for righteous women who do not have the opportunity to marry and have a family. To you noble women, our Heavenly Father knows your prayers and desires. How grateful we are for your remarkable influence, including reaching out with loving arms to children who need your faith and strength. The bearing of children can also be a heartbreaking subject for righteous couples who marry and find that they are unable to have the children they so anxiously anticipated, or for a husband and wife who plan on having a large family but are blessed with a smaller family. We cannot always explain the difficulties of our mortality. Sometimes life seems very unfair, especially when our greatest desire is to do exactly what the Lord has commanded. As the Lord's servant, 
I assure you that this promise is certain. Faithful members whose circumstances do not allow them to receive the blessings of eternal marriage and parenthood in this life will receive all promised blessings in the eternities as they keep the covenants they have made with God. President J. Scott Dorius of the Peru-Lima West Mission told me their story. He said, Becky and I were married for 25 years without being able to have or adopt children. We moved several times. Introducing ourselves in each new setting was awkward and sometimes painful. Ward members wondered why we didn't have children. They weren't the only ones wondering. When I was called as a bishop, ward members expressed concern that I did not have any experience with children and teenagers. I thanked them for their sustaining vote and asked them to allow me to practice my child-raising skills on their children. They lovingly obliged. We waited, gained perspective, and learned patience. After 25 years of marriage, a miracle baby came into our lives. We adopted two-year-old Nicole and then newborn Nikolai. Strangers now compliment us on our beautiful grandchildren. (laughs) We laugh and say, They are our children. We have lived our lives backwards. Brothers and sisters, we should not be judgmental with one another in this sacred and private responsibility. And Jesus took a child in his arms and said, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me, and whosoever receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. What a wonderful blessing we have to receive sons and daughters of God into our homes. Let us humbly and prayerfully seek to understand and accept God's commandments, reverently listening for the voice of His Holy Spirit. Families are central to God's eternal plan. I testify of the great blessing of children and of the happiness they will bring us in this life and in the eternities. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. As we study, learn, and live the gospel of Jesus Christ, sequence often is instructive. Consider, for example, the lessons we learn about spiritual priorities from the order of the major events that occurred as the fullness of the Savior's gospel was restored in these latter days. In the sacred grove, Joseph Smith saw and talked with the Eternal Father and Jesus Christ. Among other things, Joseph learned about the true nature of the Godhead and of continuing revelation. This majestic vision ushered in the dispensation of the fullness of times and is one of the signal events in the history of the world. Approximately three years later, in response to earnest prayer on the evening of September 21, 1823, Joseph's bedroom filled with light until it was lighter than at noonday. A personage appeared at his bedside, 
called the young boy by name, and declared he was a messenger sent from the presence of God and that his name was Moroni. He instructed Joseph about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. And then Moroni quoted from the Book of Malachi in the Old Testament, with a little variation in the language used in the King James Version. Behold, I will reveal unto you the priesthood by the hand of Elijah before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the fathers, and the hearts of the children shall turn to their fathers. If it were not so, the whole earth would be utterly wasted at his coming. Moroni's instructions to the young prophet ultimately included two primary themes. One, the Book of Mormon, and two, the words of Malachi foretelling the role of Elijah in the restoration of all things which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Thus, the introductory events of the Restoration revealed a correct understanding of the Godhead, emphasized the importance of the Book of Mormon, and anticipated the work of salvation and exaltation for both the living and the dead. This inspiring sequence is instructive about the spiritual matters of highest priority to deity. My message focuses upon the ministry and spirit of Elijah foretold by Moroni in his initial instructions to Joseph Smith. I earnestly pray for the assistance of the Holy Ghost. Elijah was an Old Testament prophet through whom mighty miracles were performed. He sealed the heavens, and no rain fell in ancient Israel for three and one-half years. He multiplied a widow's meal and oil. He raised a young boy from the dead, and he called down fire from heaven in a challenge to the prophets of Baal. At the conclusion of Elijah's mortal ministry, he went up by a whirlwind into heaven and was translated. We learn from Latter-day Revelations that Elijah held the sealing power of the Melchizedek priesthood and was the last prophet to do so before the time of Jesus Christ. The prophet Joseph Smith explained, quote, The spirit, power, and calling of Elijah is that he have power to hold the key of the fullness of the Melchizedek priesthood and to obtain all the ordinances belonging to the kingdom of God. Close quote. This sacred sealing authority is essential for priesthood ordinances to be valid and binding both on earth and in heaven. Elijah appeared with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration and conferred this authority upon Peter, James, and John. Elijah appeared again with Moses and others on April 3, 1836 in the Kirtland Temple and conferred the same keys upon Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. Scripture records that Elijah the prophet stood before Joseph and Oliver and said, Behold, the time has fully come, which was spoken of by the mouth of Malachi, testifying that he, Elijah, should be sent before the great and dreadful day of the Lord come, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, lest the whole earth be smitten with a curse. Therefore, 
The keys of this dispensation are committed into your hands, and by this she may know that the great and dreadful day of the Lord is near, even at the doors. The restoration of the sealing authority by Elijah in 1836 was necessary to prepare the world for the Savior's second coming and initiated a greatly increased and worldwide interest in family history research. The Prophet Joseph Smith declared, quote, The greatest responsibility in this world that God has laid upon us is to seek after our dead. For it is necessary that the sealing power should be in our hands to seal our children and our dead for the fullness of the dispensation of times, a dispensation to meet the promises made by Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world for the salvation of man. Hence God said, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Joseph further explained, But what is the object of the coming of Elijah? Or how is it to be fulfilled? The keys are to be delivered. The spirit of Elijah is to come. The gospel to be established. The saints of God gathered. Zion built up and the saints to come up as saviors on Mount Zion. But how are they to become saviors on Mount Zion? By building their temples and going forth and receiving all the ordinances in behalf of all their progenitors who are dead. And herein is the chain that binds the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, which fulfills the mission of Elijah." Elder Russell M. Nelson has taught that the spirit of Elijah is a manifestation of the Holy Ghost, bearing witness of the divine nature of the family. This distinctive influence of the Holy Ghost draws people to identify, document, and cherish their ancestors and family members, both past and present. The spirit of Elijah affects people inside and outside of the Church. However, as members of Christ's restored Church, we have the covenant responsibility to search out our ancestors and provide for them the saving ordinances of the gospel. They, without us, should not be made perfect, and neither can we, without our dead, be made perfect. For these reasons, we do family history research, build temples, and perform vicarious ordinances. For these reasons, Elijah was sent to restore the sealing authority that binds on earth and in heaven. We are the Lord's agents in the work of salvation and exaltation that will prevent the whole earth from being smitten with a curse when He returns again. This is our duty and great blessing. I now invite the attention of the young women and the young men and the children of the rising generation as I emphasize the importance of the spirit of Elijah in your lives today. My message is intended for the entire Church in general, but for you in particular. Many of you may think family history work is to be performed primarily by older people, but I know of no age limit described in the scriptures or guidelines announced by Church leaders restricting this important service to mature adults. 
You are sons and daughters of God, children of the covenant, and builders of the kingdom. You need not wait until you reach an arbitrary age to fulfill your responsibility to assist in the work of salvation for the human family. The Lord has made available in our day remarkable resources that enable you to learn about and love this work that is sparked by the spirit of Elijah. For example, Family Search is a collection of records, resources, and services easily accessible with personal computers and a variety of handheld devices designed to help people discover and document their family history. These resources also are available in the Family History Centers located in many of our Church buildings throughout the world. It is no coincidence that Family Search and other tools have come forth at a time when young people are so familiar with a wide range of information and communication technologies. Your fingers have been trained to text and to tweet to accelerate and advance the work of the Lord, not just to communicate quickly with your friends. The skills and aptitude evident among many young people today are a preparation to contribute to the work of salvation. I invite the young people of the Church to learn about and experience the spirit of Elijah. I encourage you to study, to search out your ancestors, and to prepare yourselves to perform proxy baptisms in the house of the Lord for your kindred dead. And I urge you to help other people identify their family histories. As you respond in faith to this invitation, your heart shall turn to the Father's. The promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be implanted in your hearts. Your patriarchal blessing with its declaration of lineage will link you to these fathers and be more meaningful to you. Your love and gratitude for your ancestors will increase. Your testimony of and conversion to the Savior will become deep and abiding. And I promise you will be protected against the intensifying influence of the adversary. As you participate and love this holy work, you will be safeguarded in your youth and throughout your lives. Parents and leaders, please help your children and youth to learn about and experience the spirit of Elijah. But do not overly program this endeavor or provide too much detailed information or training. Invite young people to explore, to experiment, and to learn for themselves. Any young person can do what I am suggesting using the modules available at lds.org forward slash family history youth. Aaronic priesthood, quorum, and young women class presidencies can play an important role in helping all youth become acquainted with these basic resources. Young people increasingly need to be learners who act and thereby receive additional light and knowledge by the power of the Holy Ghost and not merely passive students who primarily are acted upon. Parents and leaders, you will stand all amazed at how rapidly your children and the youth of the Church become highly skilled with these tools. 
In fact, you will learn valuable lessons from these young people about effectively using these resources. The youth can offer much to older individuals who are uncomfortable with or intimidated by technology or are unfamiliar with family search. You also will count your many blessings. As young people devote more time to family history work and temple service, and less time to video games, surfing the Internet, and Facebooking. Troy Jackson, Jaron Hope, and Andrew Allen are bearers of the Aaronic Priesthood, who were called by an inspired bishop to team-teach a family history class in their ward. These young men are representative of so many of you in their eagerness to learn and desire to serve. Troy stated, quote, I used to come to church and just sit there, but now I realize that I need to go home and do something. We can all do family history. Close quote. Jaron reported that as he learned more about family history, he realized, quote, that these were not just names but real people. I became more and more excited about taking the names to the temple. Close quote. And Andrew commented, quote, I have taken to family history with a love and vigor I did not know I could muster. As I prepared each week to teach, I was often nudged by the Holy Spirit to act and try some of the methods taught in the lesson. Before, family history was a scary thing, but aided by the Spirit, I was able to step up to my calling and help many people in our ward." My beloved young brothers and sisters, family history is not simply an interesting program or activity sponsored by the Church. Rather, it is a vital part of the work of salvation and exaltation. You have been prepared for this day and to build up the kingdom of God. You are here upon the earth now to assist in this glorious work. I testify Elijah returned to the earth and restored the sacred sealing authority. I witness that what is bound on earth can be bound in heaven. And I know and testify the youth of the rising generation have a key role to play in this great endeavor. I so testify in the sacred name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. May I encourage the young people of the Church to please heed the wise counsel and words of wisdom given to us today by President Packer. It is indeed wonderful to live in a time when prophets guide and direct God's work and children on earth, and we are so blessed to have President Thomas Monson as the true and living prophet on this earth today. By announcing new temples, many new temples across the world, President Monson showed to us again how the Church is pressing forward. Let me make reference to another great prophet of his time, even Moses, who was one of the greatest prophets of the world, as, and the world has ever known, 
He was raised by Pharaoh's daughter and spent the first 40 years of his life in the royal halls of Egypt. He knew firsthand the glory and grandeur of that ancient kingdom. Years later, on the top of a distant mountain, far removed from the splendor and magnificence of mighty Egypt, Moses stood in the presence of God and spoke to him face to face as a man speaks with his friend. During the course of that visitation, God showed Moses the workmanship of his hands, granting him a glimpse of his work and glory. When the vision ended, Moses fell to the earth for the space of many hours. When his strength finally returned, he realized something that in all his years in Pharaoh's court had never occurred to him before. I know, he said, that man is nothing. The more we learn about the universe, the more we understand, at least in a small part, what Moses knew. The universe is so large, mysterious, and glorious that it is incomprehensible to the human mind. Worlds without number have I created, God said to Moses. The wonders of the night sky are a beautiful testimony of that truth. There are few things that have filled me with such breathless awe as flying in the black of night across oceans and continents and looking out my cockpit window upon the infinite glory of millions of stars. Astronomers have attempted to count the number of stars in the universe. One group of scientists estimates that the number of stars within range of our telescopes is 10 times greater than all the grains of sand on the world's beaches and deserts. This conclusion has a striking similarity to the declaration of the ancient prophet Enoch. Were it possible that man could number the particles of the earth, yea, millions of earth like this, it would not be a beginning to the number of thy creations. Given the vastness of God's creations, it's no wonder that great King Benjamin counseled his people to always retain in remembrance the greatness of God and your own nothingness. But even though man is nothing, it fills me with wonder and awe to think that the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. And while we may look at the vast expanse of the universe and say, what is man in comparison to the glory of creation? God himself said we are the reason he created the universe. His work and glory, the purpose of this magnificent universe, is to save and exalt mankind. In other words, the vast expanse of eternity, the glories and mysteries of infinite space and time, are all built for the benefit of ordinary mortals like you and me. Our Heavenly Father created the universe that we might reach our potential as his sons and daughters. This is a paradox, paradox of man. Compared to God, man is nothing. Yet we are everything to God. While against the backdrop of infinite creation we may appear to be nothing, 
we have a spark of eternal fire burning within our breast. We have the incomprehensible promise of exaltation, worlds without end, within our grasp. And it is God's great desire to help us reach it. The great deceiver knows that one of his most effective tools in leading the children of God astray is to appeal to the extremes of the paradox of man. To some, he appeals to their prideful tendencies, puffing them up and encouraging them to believe in the fantasy of their own self-importance and invincibility. He tells them that they have transcended the ordinary and that because of ability, birthright, or social status, they are set apart from the common measure of all that surrounds them. He leads them to conclude that they are therefore not subject to anyone else's rules and not to be bothered by anyone else's problems. Abraham Lincoln is said to have loved a poem that reads, Oh, why should the spirit of mortal be proud? Like a swift flitting meteor, a fast-flying cloud, a flash of the lightning, a break of the wave, man passeth from life to his rest in the grave. Disciples of Jesus Christ understand that compared to eternity, our existence in this mortal sphere is only a small moment in space and time. They know that a person's true value has little to do with what the world holds in high esteem. They know you could pile up the accumulated currency of the entire world and it could not buy a loaf of bread in the economy of heaven. Those who will inherit the kingdom of God are those who become as a child, submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Such disciples understand also that when ye are in the service of your fellow beings, ye are only in the service of your God. Another way Satan deceives is through discouragement. He attempts to focus our sight on our own insignificance until we begin to doubt that we have much worth. He tells us that we are too small for anyone to take notice that we are forgotten, especially by God. Let me share with you a personal experience that may be of some help to those who feel insignificant, forgotten, or alone. Many years ago, I attended pilot training in the United States Air Force. I was far away from my home, a young West German soldier born in Czechoslovakia who had grown up in East Germany and spoke English only with great difficulty. I clearly remember my journey to our training base in Texas. I was on a plane sitting next to a passenger who spoke with a heavy southern accent. 
I could scarcely understand a word he said. I actually wondered if I had been taught the wrong language all along. <laughs> I was terrified by the thought that I had to compete for the coveted top spots in pilot training against students who were native English speakers. When I arrived on the airbase in the small town of Big Spring, Texas, I looked for and found the Latter-day Saint branch, which consisted of a handful of wonderful members who were meeting in rented rooms on the airbase itself. The members were in the process of building a small meeting house that would serve as a permanent place for the Church. Back in those days, as many of you know, members provided much of the labor on new buildings. Day after day, I attended my pilot training and studied as hard as I could, and then spent most of my spare time working on the new meeting house. There, I learned that a two-by-four is not a dance step, <laughs> but, a, but a piece of wood. I also learned the important survival skill of missing my thumb when pounding a nail. I spent so much time working on the meeting house that the branch president, who also happened to be one of our flight instructors, expressed concern that I perhaps should spend more time studying. My friends and fellow students, pilots, engaged themselves in free time activities as well, although I think it is safe to say that some of those activities uh, would not, not have been in alignment with today's For the Strength of Youth pamphlet. <laughs> For my part, I enjoyed being an active part of this tiny West Texas branch, practicing my newly acquired carpenter skills and improving my English as I fulfilled my callings to teach in the Elders' Quorum and in Sunday School. At the time, Big Spring despite its name, was a small, insignificant, and unknown place. And I often felt exactly the same way about myself, insignificant, unknown, and quite alone. Even so, I never once wondered if the Lord had forgotten me or if he would ever be able to find me there. I knew that it didn't matter to Heavenly Father where I was, where I ranked with others in my pilot training class, or what my calling in the Church was. What mattered to Him was that I was doing the best I could, that my heart was inclined toward Him, and that I was willing to help those around me. I knew if I did the best I could, all would be well and all was well. The Lord doesn't care at all if we spend our days working in marble halls or stable stalls. He knows where we are, no matter how humble our circumstances. He will use in His own way and for His holy purposes those who incline their hearts to Him. God knows that some of the greatest souls who have ever lived are those who will never appear in the chronicles of history. 
They are the blessed, humble souls who emulate the Savior's example and spend the days of their lives doing good. One such couple, parents of a friend of mine, exemplify this principle for me. The husband worked at a steel mill in Utah. At lunch, he would pull out his scriptures or church magazine and read. When the other workers saw this, they ridiculed him and challenged his beliefs. Whenever they did, he spoke to them with kindness and confidence. He did not allow their disrespect to make him angry or upset. Years later, one of the more vocal mockers became very ill. Before he died, he requested that this humble man speak at his funeral, which he did. This faithful member of the church never had much in the way of social status or wealth, but his influence extended deeply to all who knew him. He died in an industrial accident while stopping to help another worker who was stranded in the snow. Within a year, his widow had to undergo brain surgery, which has left her unable to walk. But people love coming to spend time with her because she listens, she remembers, she cares. Unable to write, she memorizes her children's and grandchildren's telephone numbers. She lovingly remembers birthdays and anniversaries. Those who visit her come away feeling better about life and about themselves. They feel her love. They know she cares. She never complains, but spends her days blessing the lives of others. One of her friends said this woman was one of the few people she had ever known who truly exemplifies the love and life of Jesus Christ. This couple would have been the first to say they were not of much importance in this world. But the Lord uses a scale very different from the world's to weigh the worth of a soul. He knows this faithful couple. He loves them. Their actions are a living witness of their strong faith in him. My dear brothers and sisters, it may be true that man is nothing in comparison to the greatness of the universe. At times, we may even feel insignificant, invisible, alone, or forgotten. But always remember, you matter to him. If you ever doubt that, consider these four divine principles. First, God loves the humble and meek, for they are greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Second, the Lord entrusts the fullness of his gospel to be proclaimed by the weak and the simple unto the ends of the world. He has chosen the weak things of the world to come forth and break down the mighty and strong ones and to put to shame the things which are mighty. Third, no matter where you live, no matter how humble your circumstances, how meager your employment 
or how limited your abilities, how ordinary your appearance, or how little your calling in the church may appear to you, you are not invisible to your Heavenly Father. He loves you. He knows your humble heart and your acts of love and kindness. Together they form a lasting testimony of your fidelity and faith. Now, fourth and finally, please understand that what you see and experience now is not what forever will be. You will not feel loneliness, sorrow, pain, or discouragement forever. We have the faithful promise of God that he will neither forget nor forsake those who incline their hearts to him. Have hope and faith in that promise. Learn to love your Heavenly Father and become his disciple in word and in deed. Be assured that if you but hold on, believe in him, and remain faithful in keeping the commandments, one day you will experience for yourself the promises revealed to the Apostle Paul. I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Brothers and sisters, the most powerful being in the universe is the father of your spirit. He knows you. He loves you with a perfect love. God sees you not only as a mortal being on a small planet who lives for a brief season. He sees you as his child. He sees you as the being you are capable and designed to become. He wants you to know that you matter to him. May we ever believe, trust, and align our lives so that we will understand our true eternal worth and potential. May we be worthy of the precious blessings our Heavenly Father has in store for us, is my prayer in the name of his Son, even Jesus Christ. Amen.